0: The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Book of Serenity, Cohen Collection. Huang Po's drag Slurpers, the introduction. Facing the situation, you don't see Buddha. Great enlightenment doesn't keep a teacher. The sword that settles heaven and earth obliterates human sentiments. The ability to capture tigers and rhinos forgets holy understanding. But tell me, whose strategy is this? The main case. Huangbo said to the assembly, you people are all slurpers of dregs. If you travel like this, where will you have today? Do you know that in all of China, there are no teachers of Chan? At that point, a student came forward and said, what about those who guide followers and lead groups in various places? Huangbo said, I don't say there's no Chan, just that there are no teachers. Paths divide, threads are dyed. Too much trouble. Leaves and clusters, flowers and rows, ruins the ancestors. Subtly wielding the guiding handle of creation. Vessels of water and clouds are on the potter's wheel. Clearing away tangles and chips, shaving off down. The marked balance, the jeweler's mirror, the jade ruler and gold knife. Old Huang Po can perceive even an autumn hair. Cutting off the spring wind, he doesn't allow exaltation. Good morning. So, we're concluding an introductory retreat this weekend, in which we've really devoted our time to studying the path. What is the path? in Buddha Dharma, in the Zen tradition, Chan, in Chinese pronunciation, in our own lineage. You know, we think about and talk about religion, about spirituality, about spiritual practices. What does it all mean? And is there something more important than meaning? How are lives changed? How are habits deeply ingrained, liberated? How are views tightly held to, illuminated, and seen through? How do we live with ourselves and each other in the ways that we are from the beginning, in a sense, built to do, made to do, evolved to do? Have DNA to do, have a mind to do. The Buddha said we all have Buddha nature. We all have an already completely present and perfect enlightened mind and enlightened nature. That would seem to make everything else unnecessary. If that's who we are, isn't that the end of the story? Don't we just, we don't even have to pick it up to go. It's already here. Why is there such a strong inclination to go against that with great fervor and passion, with great rationality? Is there something really just kind of messed up about (laughs) us? (laughs) Or is there something very sort of easy to understand, in a sense, given this human body and our instruments, how we perceive things. The world flows in through our senses. I look out and I see the world filled with different kinds of bodies. It all seems so clearly to be happening out there. I seem so clearly, clearly to be happening in here. There so clearly seems to be a, 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 a divide, a boundary. What's to argue? But if that's all the way it is, and we base our lives on that, then why so much arguing? Buddhism, to cease from harm, to bring forth what is good, what is life-affirming, to study the mind. It's what practitioners devote a lifetime to. The Buddha sat all the way through his life after his enlightenment. For the decades after his enlightenment, he sat. He practiced. Why? Had he not reached his goal? Was there something that he understood that he had realized that made that not even a question? Huang Bo is a a large figure within the Zen tradition. He actually was a a large figure. He was big. (laughs) A big teacher, a big guy. He lived in the ninth century during a time of a lot of strong teachers, strong lineages. There's a, he he studied with Bai Zhang, so this is very early in the, rather early in the Zen tradition, and he was the teacher of Lingji, so he was really at a very sort of important place in the lineage in the tradition of Chan. And there's a story of him being on a pilgrimage, and he fell in with another monk. And they seemed to immediately have a strong rapport. They really enjoyed each other. They laughed, and they talked, and they were really enjoying walking with each other. And they came to a very strong, moving river. So they took off their hats and tied up their robes. And Wang Po said, if the elder brother wants to go ahead, go ahead. And so he did. And he walked across the surface of the water to the other side. And he got to the other side, and he called back to Wang Po and said, come on across. And Wang Po said, ah, you self-saving fellow. If I had known this before, I would have chopped off your legs. And the monk cried out, you are truly a vessel of the Mahayana. And at that he dissolved. And so it's a story that speaks about how Buddhism is not really interested in in supernatural powers, magical powers, things to dazzle the crowd with, but, the, but rather the dazzling undertaking of living a human life, free and untethered, in harmony with each other. There's another story where he studied with Nang Kwan, another great teacher. Nan Kwan said to him, I have a song called Ode of the Oxherd.' Can you recite it? And the ox, as you know, downstairs, the ox herd picture, so there's a depiction of the of the path unfolding, <clears throat> which is the, the person who is looking for the ox, the self, to realize true nature. So Nang Quan is saying, I have a song called Ode of the Oxherd. Can you recite it? Huang Po said, I am my own teacher right here. Nang Quan said, Can you recite this song? Huang Po said, I am my own teacher right here. What is he saying? What is a path of non-attachment? That language runs all the way through the teachings. If anybody knows anything about Buddhism, they probably know that. What does that mean, non-attachment? What is non-attachment? What is attachment? And if this is a path of non-attachment, how far does it go? And what does that mean when in the pointer it says that the sword that settles heaven and earth obliterates human sentiments? Does that mean destroys them? Does that mean cut them off? Does that mean you don't get to have any? In Buddhism, one of the really important teachings and aspects of Buddhist practice is what we call upaya, skillful means. In the Lotus Sutra, there's a whole chapter devoted to expedient means. As I said yesterday to those of you doing the retreat, you know, if you're a physician and somebody is dying and you have medicine that will save their life, but they won't take it. For that person, that's not medicine. If the Dharma, the teachings, if the practice could liberate somebody from their suffering, but they're not interested, it's not medicine for them. And so teachers, teachings, practices, monasteries, all this wealth, this incredible wealth that, we have, that has come down to us, that we call Buddhism. The Buddha likened it to a raft. You come to a stream, you can't swim or wade across, so you build a raft, you cross over. Once you get across, you don't need the raft anymore. But that doesn't mean that the raft is no longer useful. It doesn't mean it should be chopped up, discarded. It just means don't carry it around. The Buddha said our attachments arise out of pain and pleasure. What do we want, what we don't want? What we avoid, what we try and pursue. What we reject, what we hold on to. It's very basic in a certain sense. Right? It's very basic, it's very elemental. And then in the same way that we can attach to what we might call worldly things, we can attach to spiritual things, robes, incense, liturgy, teachers. And, you know, it makes sense, you know, why people in a religious practice or spiritual practice would become attached to it, self-righteous, dogmatic. You know, if you're drowning at sea and somebody throws you a raft and saves your life, that's kind of a big deal right or if you're caught in a burning house and somebody gives you a ladder and helps you to get out it's natural to become attached right to the raft to the ladder to the one who gave it to you and now maybe you want to give that to somebody else maybe they don't want it so you have to be a little forceful to get them to take it Buddhism's not like that Buddhism should not be like that you can't make somebody sit. You, know, you can't make somebody let go of something. Sometimes you can't even get yourself to do it. <laughs> it's got to come from within. We have to bring ourselves to this. It's one of the things I've always really valued about Buddhism is the understanding of that. Right? I mean, it's good to, to know that it's there. It's good to know where you might go to seek it out. But we have to seek it out. And that's why, in a sense, there's a balance, particularly in the Zen tradition, of making it accessible enough that you can find the raft, but not so easy that you think somebody's carrying you across. because if 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 somebody's fooling you into thinking that, you're th- you're being fooled. And that's not helpful to anybody. It's not empowering. We have to find our own way and we need a lot of help. In the um, Prajnaparamita Sutra, the Buddha says, it says, this with a mother who has many children, she might have five or ten or twenty or thirty, hundred, a 1, thousand, if she were to fall ill, all of her children would exert themselves to prevent their mother from dying, to keep her alive as long as possible. Because they're aware that to her they own, they owe their existence, that in great pain she has brought them into this world, that she has instructed them in the ways of the world. There's a debt of gratitude. And he goes on to say, in just this way, the Buddhas, the Tathagadas, bring this perfection of wisdom, this Dharma, to mind, to us, and it is through the power of the Buddhas bringing this teaching, these practices to us, sustaining power and grace that allows us to write and study and practice, and that they do this for the well-being and happiness of all people, all creatures, out of sympathy for them, out of compassion for them, they bring this dharma forward. For she, the dharma, Prajnaparamita, is our mother, our begetter. She shows us this wisdom, knowledge. She instructs us in the ways of the world. From her the Buddhas have come forth. She has begotten and shown the cognition, the realization of all knowing, of, of wisdom, and shown them the world for what it really is. Here in this koan, Huang Bo says, don't you know that in all of China there are no teachers? The footnote says, You yourself are a teacher. So, what's he up to? What's he saying? Now, there are many teachings, many different ways the teachings is conveyed. Sometimes it's very instructional. When you receive instruction in Zazen on Friday night or whenever each of us receive that, that's instruction. Right? It makes sense. It's linear. You do this with your body, with your hands. You sit upright. You breathe in this way. You work with your mind in this way. When you encounter different things, this is how you practice them. It's easy to follow. But then when you take that in and you begin to apply it, you realize that that linear instruction is helpful to a point. But very quickly you're at a point where you realize you can't just apply A to this and B to this. It's more complex to this than this. You're more complex than this. You're not a linear thing. It's not just a matter of applying instruction. No instruction is important. Something else is going on that no one can actually, in a certain sense, ultimately help you with. But that's okay, because there is someone who can provide all that you need, and that's you. And you do it right there on that cushion. And you are doing it with, if you do it, if we do it, as we do it, we're doing that with a great deal of help and support, some of which we recognize and some of which we don't. And so when Wang Po said, in all of China there are no Chan teachers, earlier in that Conversation with Nanquan. he said, I am my own teacher right here. That's very easy to misunderstand. right? I have Buddha nature. I am my own teacher. What do I need a teacher for? When I was early in my training, oftentimes questions would come up, things that I was confused about, and I would, in a sense, ask the question, and I would consider taking it to my teacher, and I'd think, well, I'm going to have to sort this out. Right? Whatever he tells me, I'm going to have to, like, apply it and practice it and understand it and resolve this, so why bother asking? And at a certain point in my training, I thought, why is it more happening between me and my teacher? (laughs) And I realized, in all these different ways, I'm not giving him a chance to teach me. I think I already know. I've already decided. And there was some truth to what I was thinking. But there was a lot of immaturity, not understanding, misunderstanding. Yes, each person is complete, possesses Buddha nature. Yes, we all have the capacities. Dogen says, you have hands, you can make asho. You have legs that work reasonably well, you can make prostrations. You have a mind that's reasonably clear, you can do zazen." Don't doubt any of that. Don't doubt your capacity to practice and realize yourself. But what is our guide? Well, when we sit on that cushion, you're mine. You're the one that's making choices moment to moment. Even if we have a teacher, studying with a teacher, right? How long does face-to-face teaching last? A few minutes. I remember one years ago, uh, somebody became a student. After careful reflection, meeting with the Guardian Council, going through that process, which is really designed to help Both self-reflect, but also understand, what what are you asking for? Do you understand what this is? And they came in to do their nine bows and do shoken. And the interview, the doksan was characteristically concise and condensed. That's part of it. It's not a long, leisurely chat, right? It's intended to be focused and concentrated, right? And we're learning how to bring everything to the point here, now. Right? To bring it up from the surf- to the surface, right? So it becomes accessible. So we become the one who knows what is important right now. So there's a design to this, it's intentional. And so he came in and he did Doksan. And then afterwards he sent me a he sent me a letter and he said, that was so short, I didn't get to tell you my story. I didn't get to tell you all about my life. How are we ever going to, you know, this is impossible. I'm out of here. <laughs> I think he wanted to go out and sit down and have a coffee. right? Maybe do that every week, have an hour, three hours, I don't know. To get to know him. right? And that is a way to get to know somebody. That's a wonderful way to get to know somebody. Right? It's a particular way of getting to know somebody. There are other ways. There's a way in which, you know, what is training? What does it mean to have a path, an eightfold path? What is the profound nature of the Buddha saying this is a path? You know, he didn't say, look, I'm going to teach you meditation, and then you're going to have this enlightenment experience, and then you're done. Okay? So here's a meditation instruction. Go get it. Congratulations. He didn't do that. He said, this is a path. It's an eightfold path. It involves your understanding. It involves your thought processes, your intention, your ability to bring forth intention. It involves your language, your speech, internally and externally. It it involves what you do with your body. It involves what you do for work. It involves effort. And all of these, as I mentioned on Friday, have very particular meanings. What is your effort? What is the right effort? What is your meditation? How do you use your mind? How does that deepen into concentration? The eight gates, right? Why don't we just do meditation? If that's a foundational practice, why don't we do all this other stuff? Right? It makes it a lot more complicated. We can think that if we just have an experience, I want an experience, And that experience is called enlightenment, and it's going to dissolve all of my obstacles, my attachments. It's going to open my heart. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to know what to do in every moment. All of my troubles are going to be gone. That's just more fantasy. And so we train to learn how to live in the Dharma, to live in reality. That's what dharma is. And how do we learn to do that? By living it. How do we cultivate a life of compassion? By by practicing compassion. And learning how to do that in all kinds of circumstances. Particularly when compassion seems like it's gone to another country. You can't find it. You may not even want to find it. What about now? How do you untangle yourself when you seem intractably tangled? There were times where I would be sitting on this cushion, and I would be in such a knot, I couldn't find my way out, and so I would just stop practicing. I'd sit there, you know, in my posture, but I'd just sit there, just like a dead piece of meat, right? Do nothing. Not try to do nothing. Just try and, like, start over, you know? Wipe it clean somehow. And then, slowly, I would try and come back and just find my breath. How do we get so tangled up? Doing nothing particular. (laughs) What is that showing us? (laughs) And so it's not just about having an experience, because we can have an experience that is true and deep and transformative, but everything that needs to be transformed is still in place the karmic body, all of our entanglements, all of our reactions, our impulsive consciousness, we may be able to see, we may have experienced that those have no abiding nature, that they are empty, but that doesn't stop them from arising with force. And so experience alone is not enough, because also they're impermanent, right? They come and go. In Master Dogen's Guidelines on Study of the Way, he said, he talked about If somebody were to just be made a ruler, right? So you are just selected. You are now the new ruler of the country. You don't know anything about it. You have no training. You don't know how things work, but you're now in charge, right? Now, how's that going to go? Well, we may just be about to see that. (laughs) Let's see what happens next week. Oh, I guess we've already been seeing some of it, haven't we? But he says, He says, if you were to gain realization without practice, how could you understand the Buddha's teachings of delusion and enlightenment? If you were to gain realization, have an experience that is true, see into your self-nature, but without practice, without any context, without having sort sort of engaged in your landscape... Right? your whole experience of the world, and how you experience the world, how you create the world, if that's not been a part of it, then how would you be able to understand, not just the Buddha's teachings of delusion and alignment, but what you actually experienced? And so what happens, the danger of that, is it just it becomes an isolated experience. It can be powerful, then this has happened. It can be transformative, it can be disturbing. But how is it lived? He says, you should know that arousing practice in the midst of delusion, you attain realization before you recognize it. Very interesting. You attain realization before recognizing it. And in a sense, that's how it must be, because the moment of realization, there can be no recognizer. There can be no subject and object. So then how can it be known? How can it be realized, be experienced by someone, by you? Then he goes on to say, This time you first know that the raft of discourse is like yesterday's dream, and now you can finally let go of your old understanding that is bound up in the vines and serpents of words. This is not made to happen by Buddha, but is accomplished by your all-encompassing effort. And this is coming from a teacher who had a very strong relationship with words <laughs> and teachings, Master Dogan. But he's saying, in the moment of realization, we realize that all of the teachings is a raft. It is like yesterday's dream. They come and go, they are really essential, they are very important, they help us to go cross that raging river. And that that and that everything we experience in practice is not made to happen by Buddha, but is accomplished by your all-encompassing effort. Not by the power of Buddha, not by the blessing of a teacher. You are the one. And yet that can also be misunderstood. right? You are the one, which, which means I am the teacher right now, so why do I need any of you? Why do I need any of this? And there is in the teachings the recognition that some people come to realization on their own. They're called pratyeka buddhas, solitary buddhas. And they're recognized as having insight. But it's considered of a lesser power, a lesser grade, if you will, because it's really a self-liberation. That's what a person's looking for, and that's what they do with it. It's not offered to anybody. It doesn't serve anyone else. It's limited. So when Wangbo says there are no teachers in all of Chan, he's not saying that teachers are not important. He's a teacher. And he's teaching <laughs> in that moment as a Chan teacher. What is he teaching? So we can talk about the teacher as a guide, guiding us through the wilderness. So many others have traveled through this wilderness, but not us. So every step we take is a brand new step. And we can look at the Oxford pictures. I mean, the the teachings are replete with descriptions about stages and and what you're going to experience and how to meet it. But you know what? It's like the instruction in Zazen. It's extremely helpful. And in the moment when it's happening, it's different. I remember my teacher in my very early training, he would talk about, you know, going into the dark cave of the dragon, meeting your karmic entanglements and how you... You know, it'll knock you down, and you have to get back up, and, you know, all of this language. And I was like, yes, you know, I'm ready. Because <laughs> I thought, you know, I've done difficult things. For a lot. My life hasn't been all easy. You know, I'm up for this. And my hunger was great. I was desperate. Right? For me, this was, I did not have faith that there was another path for me, just for me. I didn't know about anybody else. And so when I but when I encountered those moments which were very real, I forgot all of those things he had said. I didn't see this as, you know, a propitious moment, as, you know, an opportunity. I saw this as like just what the hell is going on? What's wrong? What's wrong with me? Why is this happening? You know, I'm practicing it. Why doesn't it go away? It's not the same when we're in the midst of it which is okay, but it will challenge us. And in those moments, what do we take refuge in? What do we rely upon? In the poem, it says, paths divide, threads are dyed, too much trouble. Leaves and clusters, flowers and rose, ruins the ancestors, subtly wielding the guiding handle of creation. Vessels of water and clouds are on the potter's wheel. Water and clouds in Japanese is unsui, which is the name for a monastic. I love that. Isn't that wonderful? The monastic is clouds and water, something that has no solid existence. It is not fixed. It can take all kinds of forms. The footnote to those few lines say, When the things you are concerned with are few, your troubles are few. Where you know many people, there will be much judgment of right and wrong. Subtly wielding the guiding hand of creation, the footnote is, one day the authority is in your hands. Well, that actually, that day happened a long time ago, when you came out screaming, (laughs) right? But it takes a little while, right? That's what being a baby and a child is about. Not quite ready. Not quite ready. But pretty soon, before we seem ready, before we know we're ready, before we even know it's, where it's, it's happening, we're making choices. We're responding. We are reacting to our world. We're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to get what we need. A little love, a little belonging, a little sense of self-worth, a little sense of how who am I, what am I, in the relationship to all of these other. Bodies moving around me, things begin to get set pretty quick, paths begin to divide, threads are dyed, leaves form in clusters, which cluster belongs to you, do you belong to, what about all those other ones, what are you going to do about those, and all the while subtly guiding the handle of creation, or creating, creating a self, creating others. Creating a world. The Buddha wasn't the only one to understand this. Scientists understand this, right? How do we perceive? What is perception? We think it's all happening out there, we're just neutral observers. Doesn't quite work that way. So, what happens when we bring our inner turmoil, our inner confusion, or our inner bias, our inner conviction of what is true? without any examination, without any necessarily evidence to back it up. And we bring that, not so much into the world, but we bring that out as the world. That's what the world is. How's that going to work out? So this is where our zazen, in a way, if at no other time, although let there be other times, should be the time where we actually have trust enough to do, as he's saying in in the footnotes to this, to have a time where the concerns are few. Our lives are so filled with responsibility and obligations and things we need to take care of. That's what life is. But when we're so busy and concerned with everything that is needing to be done, It's very difficult to examine, what am I doing? Is this worthy of my time? How am I doing this? What is the consequence of this? How do I even understand the what of what this is? How does this moment, this day, integrate into a whole life? You know, we're all groomed to ask the question, What are you doing? What are you going to do? But not so often are we asked the question, how do I want to be in the world? How do you want to be in the world as a living thing? you know, How do you want to wake up with the day ahead of you? I was telling somebody that early in my training, I I had the idea, this image, that at the end of my life, I wanted to be like a wooden matchstick, that it it had burned all the way down. In other words, there was a sense I didn't want to go through my life and not use everything. And I remember when I decided I wanted to be a monastic and I was talking to friends, and some people said, Aren't you, doesn't that feel like it's going to be so limited? I mean, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I didn't know too much at that point, but I said, I have a feeling I'm going to be using more than I even knew I had. And boy, did I underestimate that. How is it to be called upon to be, have to bring forth aspects of yourself that you don't even know you have, or you might be quite sure you don't have? What kind of gumption is that? I remember talking to a teacher, an elder teacher, who I'm very close to and I respect a great deal, and she said, you know, you have to have some audacity to practice the Dharma. Right? You have to be a little bold to say, I'm going to liberate suffering. Right? I mean, come on! <laughs> so, be audacious. How do we navigate? If we just rely, you know, we have to trust ourselves. I teach you used to say that all the time. Trust yourself. Profoundly trust in yourself. But how do you trust yourself when you know that there or aspects of your mind, or things that are arising in the moment that you you know, or you're pretty sure, are not actually trustworthy. Knowing that is a good start to trust in yourself, knowing that. Don't follow that voice. We will experience things in practice that are confusing, that bring forth anxiety, other moments that seem very exciting, some moments that seem very boring, And I remember Shun Rinpoche talking about zazen as being very boring. You know, I never really experienced that. I never have experienced zazen as being boring. Sometimes it was dull, you know. I certainly have experienced that. But not boring. We will experience karma arising. We have to. How else will, will we untie those knots? Memories, events, relationships, grudges, regrets, basically all the stuff we'd rather not experience. (laughs) I mean, if we are honest, right? I mean, if we could just get there, right? And sort of deal with all of that somehow over there. Like, can I just give that to you? You take care of it. When I get there, give me back something all clean and shiny. We will have to deal with the internal judge. We have to assess, we have to be able to reflect on how we're practicing. We have to recognize when we're getting lost, recognize when we're, getting, when we're indulging something, right? when we're seeking out distraction, when we're shutting ourselves down. We have to be able to recognize those, otherwise we can't practice them. But how do you do that without being harsh in that, in that recognition? Just recognizing it. Oops! You know, it's like you learn how to drive. You're driving down the road. You realize that you're veering off. You come back into the lane. Do you, like, sentence yourself to death for that, right? Is that a fatal flaw that you've just made? You just correct it. You just correct it. Now you're you're back in the lane. It's nice to say that. It's just not that easy. We might be the one who wants to have power. We might be the one who is afraid. You know, sometimes what happens as we're practicing is it's working. Our our zazen is starting to develop. We're entering the deeper states of silence, deeper states of stillness. We're starting to really see the mind, and it freaks us out. It's like, what if I actually realize myself? Then what am I going to be responsible for? It's like there's a sense, oh, then I think I'll, be, I'll really be responsible. We might be used to being successful, getting what we want. We might be used to failing, and so we expect that. We might be convinced that we're already enlightened, or we'll soon be, or we might be convinced that we will never be enlightened, Ever. We might be one who wants to get close to the teacher. Right? Some people want to get close to what they perceive as power. Other people want to stay as far away as they can. And is used to talk about how however we arrive, you know, however we soar, of wherever we find ourselves on all those various sort of spectrums of possibility, this is a middle path. We are going to have to let go of some things. We're going to have to cultivate some things, strengthen them. And the teacher only wants, I, I believe, if the teacher is in the right seat, they only want the student to have the best life possible. It's not complicated. To have the best life possible as who they are, as their person, to discover their real self-nature. They should not want anything from the student, They should understand the student's capacity to both accomplish themselves and to stumble and fall. They should know that it's it's possible that a student may come in and stay forever and that a student may come in and leave and they may come back again and they may not. And that the student may sometimes be grateful and sometimes they are going to be angry at the teacher. The teacher should know these things and not be so surprised. How do they know these things? Because they are a student. Because they have experienced those things with their teacher. And their teacher has experienced those things with their teacher. It's part of what is passed down. In a sense, we don't just pass down the light, we pass down the dark. Enlightenment and delusion. In terms of encountering it, practicing it, freeing ourselves of it, continuing to need to practice and free ourselves of it. And so within all of China, there is no, no Zen teachers. But what about all those who guide followers and lead groups? And Huang says, I don't say there's no Chan. There's just no teachers. And because of that, the Buddha said, the teacher does not think, I am a teacher. I am teaching you. I am offering the Dharma. You are a student. The teacher is not thinking that. They're just... just. Teacher is a word. Dharma is a word. Sangha is a word. These are words. They're useful. But when you look inside of a teacher, do you find anything that is a teacher? When you look inside of a student, do you see anything that is a student? It's a living thing. And because there are no Chan teachers, no Zen teachers, not just in China, teachers can appear. Students can come forth. We can build monasteries. Sanghas can form. We can stand and fall. We can move in. We can retreat. We can hold on. We can let go. Because there are no Chan teachers, all of that is possible which is another way of saying that practice is always present as a potential. But the power of the mind of the student is that the student sees that, turns towards that, engages it, lives that. You know, to really consider what we are trying to do, to not become attached in any duality, And it's not just a matter of balancing the dualities out, but actually to free ourselves of all sense of things having inherent meaning, existence, characteristics, attributes, which means everything is already free, unbound. And when we unbind our mind, we see that. And we see that everyone who may appear to be bound is not fundamentally So it makes no sense to hate them for what they do, right? But to want to stop, sometimes, people from what they do, because they are creating unnecessary harm. To chip away the tangles and chips, to shave off the down, to smooth out the rough edges, right? The image of a pearl, it just rolls easily in all directions. And the reason it's always workable is because we just practice moment by moment, right? Just the way you got here, right? You had to put one front in front of the other, you had to make stuff happen, (laughs) make decisions, bring things into alignment reorganize, right? We have to prepare the table to have a meal. We have to prepare ourselves to practice. We have to, in a sense, set the table to bring wisdom and compassion to the world. So for those of you who came this weekend, I want to thank you for coming. It was really nice to have you living here together as a sangha, and practicing together. I hope it's been helpful to you. I hope you will continue whatever it is that brought you here, in whatever direction that might be. And I encourage you, whatever that direction is, to engage it wholeheartedly. If it's worthy of your attention, give your attention to it. And discover what wholeheartedness is. So I'll end with a poem. The one who seeks is the one who knows before understanding. The one who trusts is the one who, with faith, before recognition. This great beech tree outside my window gives life to each and every leaf and shade and breath and beauty immeasurable. Now the leaves litter the ground and the branches are bare in the cooling breeze. Never stingy, never remorseful, it stands alone and full against the blue, blue sky. May we live our lives so completely, so naturally, never stingy, never remorseful, alone and full against the blue, blue sky in the great company of all the trees. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.